Welcome back to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. This is episode number 16. Welcome back, Mr. Markham. How are you, sire? <laughs> Just want you to say never go outside of the family again, Mr. Markham. That's all I can tell you. Telling you, he's made me an offer I can refuse. Freedom. In case our listeners are wondering what this latest silliness is all about, the magazine or a newspaper called The Age, from I believe Melbourne, has a page on technology, and just recently they had a feature story on Cameron Riley, whom they describe as the Podfather. So, you know, he's going to make you an offer you can't refuse and keep an eye on your horse's head because uh, you're dealing with uh, a very special company now. And, of course, there is a there is a Napoleonic tie into that because, of course, Francis Ford Coppola, the director of the Godfather films, uh, revived that uh, very, very old Napoleon film by Abel Gantz back in the 80s and, and pulled together the film and had his father, Carmen Coppola, uh, do a soundtrack for it, etc., etc. So we, we, in many ways, uh, have uh, Francis Ford Coppola to thank for pulling all of that together. I know that he does have a keen interest in Napoleonic history and and may even be a listener to this podcast we 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 have had uh, unconfirmed sightings of him uh in the audience <laughs> well i will be interested to know how you can have an unconfirmed sighting of a non-video podcast but you're the technical uh, technological uh, geek so i'll leave that to you however i gotta tell our listeners if by some chance you have never seen uh of Francis Ford Coppola's uh, The Godfather, uh, which is a very long, silent film. Uh, the Godfather? You need to see it. It's it's a wonderful show. I, I saw it in, in the... In wait, 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 wait. You just said Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather is a very long, silent film. I'm very sorry. Well, that's, that's true. It's a very long, but very unsilent film. <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola's Napoleon is a very long, silent film. It was done by Abel Gatson. 1927, I think. Uh, it's it's a wonderful film to see. Uh, my wife complains about the apparently interminable snowball fight that they have when Napoleon <laughs> is a student. Uh, Fifteen minutes or so of that, apparently. Uh, but I, I saw it in the mid '80s in Phoenix, Arizona, where, where I was living at the time, and and we had a special program, uh, and and somebody came on and gave a talk and so on, and it was quite quite well done. There's also a book or two, which I, I don't have in front of me right now, that tell the story of how that all came together. That movie was, in, of course, in those days, on various reels of film, and the reels had scattered to the four winds, and no one really knew where it all was. And, and Coppola and another fellow whose again name escapes me, I, I, I apologize to our listeners, uh, worked diligently to put that thing together to track down all of those uh, reels, bring it all together, and now, of course, you can get it on VHS or DVD or whatever, and it's, it's really quite well done. Unfortunately, it only goes up, if I recall, to the first Italian campaign. It was initially going to be the first of three or four epic films that, that Abel Gantz did on Napoleon, uh, unfortunately, this was the only one that he did. He does have another one, if I recall, on Austerlitz, uh, which was not part of the series. Uh, and so that's that's quite good. Uh, but I do encourage you to, to do that. And, and I also encourage you to, to see the movie The Godfather, and you'll get a pretty good idea of what apparently our friend Cameron Riley is all about. <laughs> Uh, just to fill in some of the gaps there, the film historian who helped Coppola pull it together is Kevin Brownlow. And yes, exactly. And he wrote he wrote a book which I have. It's a wonderful book. I've got the book. It's a fabulous book. And in fact, there's a, a little Art Deco cinema in Melbourne that has a large poster in its foyer. Uh, of the launch of the restorated, uh, restorated, restored film, and um, I've tried on a number of occasions to negotiate the acquisition of that uh, 
you know, framed first edition uh, poster from the owner of the cinema, but he refuses to part with it. So I have to wait till we make our millions uh, as the podfather. I might be able to go back and buy it. Well, well, Cameron, I, 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 it's unusual to talk about this sort of thing over the air like this, but as it happens, I have two of those posters, one of which is very, very large, and it hangs in, in my living room, and, and I won't part with that. But a smaller version uh, from the, the, the first uh, triumphal tour uh, across the United States uh, is also beautifully framed and languishes uh, in the anteroom to my library. And I suspect you and I can work something out on that. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to resume that uh, when I come over to see. Maybe we'll have a friendly game of Baccarat and uh, the winner can, uh, can take it back with them. Well, I'm sure not going to, to, to pin it all on a game of chess because if I recall the last several times I played chess against you, uh, I was humiliated beyond imagination. Yeah. Anyway, I guess the audience is probably waiting for us to get on with the Napoleon business. So let's get into it. We They may recall that at the end of episode 15, which we recorded several weeks ago, uh, we were talking about the twin battles of Jena and Arstadt. It's uh, part of the fourth coalition against, well, Napoleon against uh, <laughs> the United Monarchs of Europe to a very large extent in uh, 1806. Yeah. Once again. And uh, we, we kind of, you know, we, we ran out of time as we usually do and we, we stopped short of um, several really important battles that happened around 1806 and 1807. And what we're going to try and cover in the show today, listeners, are the battles of Elau and Friedland and the Treaty of Tilsit. We're, we're going to stay away from the Peninsular War uh, in Spain just because uh, David and I kind of agree that that's an episode that, that requires an episode in and of itself, which we will try and do in the next couple of weeks for you. But I'm, I'm really excited about this because Poland and Warsaw is, um, I think, a fascinating uh, part of this story, in not only in terms of some of the possible mistakes that Napoleon made and the way that his uh, insult. The way he insulted the Polish, I think, or got them offside, which came back once again perhaps to bite him on the backside later on, but also because, obviously, of his uh, relationship with the beautiful Maria Valeska, and uh, lastly because my uh, maternal grandfather was Polish, and for all of our Polish listeners, I have to say, Szakrefelera Szaklinta Wognistia which I believe is uh, uh, an offensive swear word in Polish that my grandfather used to say all the time when he stubbed his toe. I have no idea what it means. He would never tell me. And if I have genuinely offended anyone, I apologize. Maybe for the first time on this show or I'm sure the last time that I've offended somebody in the audience. But at least I don't think it has anything to do with George Bush because my grandfather passed away quite a few years ago. You, you've done your best to insult Republicans, monarchists, <laughs> and now and now polls on our show. So you know, I spend about a third of my time trying to uh, to, to make amends for all this, but that's uh, that's fine. Uh, I also have to tell you that I visited Poland a few short years ago, actually, just about three years ago, uh, and visited some of the places that we're going to discuss uh, uh, in, in Poland and, and 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 also in Kaliningrad, that little enclave of Russia where. Halau and Friedland are located, and and the, the Poles are, are are wonderful people. Poland's a delightful country, and extraordinarily important historically, not just to the Napoleonic era, but but also the things that happened in World War II uh, and, and so on. And and I always encourage our our, our listeners to uh, to go and visit a lot of these places, and, and Poland would be a very good place to uh, to start your visit. And I'd like to maybe uh, kick off today's episode by turning down my volume a little bit. How um, uh, Yeah, that doesn't sound so loud. <laughs> With some words from uh, the, the highly esteemed David Chandler. I just I, I love the, the poetry in the way that he sort of introduces this part of the campaign. 
Napoleon had blown with his breath, and Prussian military might was no more. The news of the sudden French victory at Hainau Alstadt left the governments of Europe gasping and amazed. It was difficult enough to credit the news that the army of Frederick the Great had been virtually annihilated in the maelstrom and subsequent exploitation of a single day's fighting. It was still harder to accept the fact that Napoleon was now in effective control of all Europe to the west of the River Oder. It was only 13 months since the newly born Grande Armée had first crossed the Rhine and swept towards the Danube, but in that period the armies and governments of the two greatest Germanic powers had been brought low, the forces of Holy Russia severely drubbed, and the French frontier to all intents and purposes pushed 350 miles eastward. But then he goes on to say that uh, the news wasn't necessarily taken all that well in Paris, that there were you know, quite a few voices in Paris starting to say, well, the honeymoon's kind of over, and they kind of feared that Napoleon's continual success might make him less inclined to sue for peace with these powers and you know, be more inclined to uh, press forward. Uh, and, and, you know, I think as we said in the last episode, 1806 to me, 1805, 1806, certainly after Austerlitz, uh, seems to be the period where some of the shine goes off of Napoleon in uh, terms of the his reception in France and, um, you know, his successes or lack thereof in Europe. But certainly uh, this particular period we're concentrating on the show uh, went well for him, didn't it? Well, a couple of comments. First, first of all, uh, if, if the Allies were in fact uh, stunned by Napoleon's decisive and, and rather rapid defeat of the so-called armies of Frederick the Great, they were they were living in the past. Uh, this is this is not Frederick the Great, and the Prussian army was nowhere near at that uh, high level. Uh, the, the Prussians were were foolish to have gotten involved. And they were foolish to have insisted on carrying the fight forward, as I think we mentioned last time, uh, prior to the arrival of, of the Russians, who were a far more formidable uh, force uh, than, than the Prussians. So, so there's, there, there, there's that. Uh, but you also uh, say, and, and, and quite correct, uh, that uh, the, the French people were a little bit, at least, <clears throat> excuse me, concerned about all of this. They were beginning to tire a little bit of war. The the victory, the great victory at Austerlitz uh, had been hyped, uh, rightfully, to some extent at least, as, as the destruction of the coalition against Napoleon. So psychologically, an awful lot of people in France assumed reasonably that the French army would be coming home. Uh, and that peace would break out across Europe. They were not at all disenthralled with Napoleon, uh, but they were anxious to have Napoleon come home and, and, and rule as, as, as the enlightened leader that, that, that he was. So when all of a sudden it turns out he's having to fight the, the Prussians, there's a little bit of a disillusionment there, a little bit of disappointment. Still, clearly they're pleased that, Chandler notwithstanding, they're, they're pleased that that the Prussians are defeated, and now they're thinking, okay, now the, 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 the French army will come home. But the French army is not going to come home, and the reason is not Hubert's on Napoleon's part or a desire for global conquest or whatever. Uh, the reason is that the fact of the matter is the Russian forces led by General Benningson are coming after the French. They are moving east. They are not paying much attention to the fact that They've lost Austerlitz, and their allies, the Prussians, have been defeated. The 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 uh, Prussian king has, has has moved moved east to, to to join forces with the with the Russians. And as far as they're concerned, uh, the preliminaries were lost, but the main game is still to come, and they're not about to duck out. So, and I agree with you. I mean, I. <laughs> Although we have been, uh, we've received a little bit of criticism on the uh, website recently about our uh, 
um, uh, not being forthright enough in our criticism of Napoleon around uh, the assassination of the Duke, etc., etc. But I think this is very fair to say that it's not like the Russians were uh, making any uh, peaceful suggestions at this stage. They were acting in a very aggressive manner. And Napoleon was never one to just sit there and let people smack him around the top of the head. So they well, that's exactly right, Cameron. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, if the, if the Russians are sending an envoy and saying, well, gee, you, you beat us at Austerlitz, you beat our allies, the Prussians, let's see if we can't cut a deal, because neither the Russian people or, or the French people are, are served by continual warfare. There's no doubt in my mind, nor should there be doubt in anyone's mind, and I suspect that my old friend, uh, the now deceased David Chandler, uh, would agree that Napoleon would have been happy to sit down and come up with a peaceful solution. Now, whether or not that would have worked, whether or not they could have agreed uh, on the terms of a peace is impossible to predict. But Napoleon had a tendency, uh, much to the, to the dismay of some of his uh, supporters, to, to occasionally be fairly generous toward his enemies and to not always... Uh, demand uh, everything that he could. On the other hand, sometimes he was accused of demanding too much. Nevertheless, I believe that it's reasonable to say that had Russia sued for peace or simply stopped, stayed where they were, and not moved forward, that Napoleon might very well have said, fine, this is, this is it, let's go home. Now, what would have happened later on down the line is impossible to predict. Nevertheless, as you say, the Russians were moving forward. Napoleon had no choice. To move back to Paris now would be to retreat uh, in front of an oncoming enemy army who presumably would you know, pursue him all the way to, to, to France. Uh, that wasn't going to happen. And so as a result of the, the Russians' decision to continue the war, uh, we, we move into the next phase, the, the winter phase. And uh, I should... Um uh, give some credit too to um, Adam Zamoyski. I, I think that's how he, it's pronounced. Um, he, he is in fact Polish, I believe. Um, he's he's kind of almost he's a he's a duke or has some sort of lordy lordy title <laughs> in Poland. Uh, we, I'd love to get him on the show actually and have a chat um, when we finish our series. His title may be impressive, but it's not nearly as impressive as the Podfather. <laughs> Why, thank you. Um, Adam uh, recently, like uh, a year or so ago, came out with a book called Moscow 1812, Napoleon's Fatal March, which we've talked a little bit about on the website, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was uh, very well written. And one of the things that it helped me understand a lot more was some of the... Uh, the political situation in Russia during this period. Obviously, uh, as we've mentioned briefly before, the Tsar Paul had been um, assassinated. Quite possibly uh, his son, Alexander, had a hand in that. And Alexander was now the Tsar of Russia, the Emperor of Russia. And, you know, there was uh, a lot riding on his shoulders, wasn't there? I mean, in terms of the political situation in Russia, they looked upon Napoleon as this upstart, this usurper. You know, the Russians were a very proud people. And Paul had, in large part, been assassinated because of his... Uh, uh, weak stance against the French as, as it was perhaps perceived and uh, you know Alexander felt a lot of pressure coming from his sisters and members of the Russian nobility and his mother to stand up and go out there and defeat this uh, Corsican usurper so at this particular point in time certainly before the Treaty of Tilsit Alexander had uh, a lot of internal pressure would you agree? Oh, certainly. Uh, no question. Uh, Paul was assassinated. Some even say that Alexander had a hand in it. I'm, I'm not convinced of that, but it wouldn't be a wild surprise. Uh, but Paul was assassinated because he was seen as cozying up a bit too much to the French uh, and, and, and not necessarily representing true Russian interests. Uh, Alexander had to be very careful. We think of czars as absolute rulers, uh, 
whose word was 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 it, you know, ruling by the will of God, etc., etc. But reality was always a little bit different. Uh, reality was that he had a no class of nobility that he had to keep reasonably happy. Uh, he had family concerns, as you suggest, his mother and others, uh, that he had to keep happy. Uh, he had to keep the army happy. Uh, even to a certain extent, he had to keep the peasants happy, uh, the serfs. But, but primarily it was the nobles, the business class. This will really come to the front when we get into 1812. And, and by the way, Adam Zamaski's book is, is wonderful. It's, it's arguably the best book on that topic of the 1812 Russian campaign. And I should clarify too, sorry, that he's actually American. He was born in New York, raised in England, but he's of uh, a member of the Zamoyski, which is an ancient Polish nobility family, and his title is actually Count Adam Zamoyski. You, you need a title like that, David, if you're going to compete with gentlemen like this as a Napoleonic historian. You need, uh, you need to get yourself a title. Well, I'm 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 working on that. Of course, there are places where you can can actually buy titles. You probably get one on eBay. I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> be unhappy if I simply was known as the the assistant podfather. I mean, you know, I mean, just <laughs> something modest uh, uh, to 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 go with my uh, credentials. Uh, I'm, I'm a modest man. Nevertheless, Husky's book is extraordinarily well well done. Uh, and 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 you're right. To get back to our topic here, the the uh, Russians were putting pressure on Alexander. But Alexander also was young, very young. He was a bit on the brash side, to say the least. And he imagined that he would be able to match wits Napoleon. He imagined that he had this huge country. I mean, Russia, enormous country with a huge a source of manpower, an enormous army, and he imagined that he would be able in his tender years to beat the great Napoleon uh, and put an end to all this French nonsense. Well, it wasn't going to happen, uh, but uh, we've all been young, uh, and, and therefore we've all been brash and perhaps unrealistic, and uh, that's the way you could best describe Alexander. So, as we said, the Russian forces were moving into Poland. Now, uh, the other, I guess, part of this story, which I certainly wasn't familiar with uh, and, and still don't feel that I'm completely across, is the history of Poland. It was, it was one of these uh, countries which had kind of been kicked around like a bit of a soccer ball between the European powers for many years, hadn't it? And at this particular point in time, they were hoping to gain their independence and they were actually, the, the Polish authorities, the Polish nobility were actually hoping that Napoleon was going to be the good guy, come in and, uh, you know, do what... You know, he had done in a number of places in Europe, bring sort of a nationalistic fervor, talk about liberty and legality, and they were actually hoping for a, a leg up. Well, they were. Uh, Poland had traditionally been controlled to one extent or another, uh, either by Russia or Austria or Prussia. Uh, and the, the Poles, as a general rule, did not care for either of any of those countries, uh, obviously. Uh, and they had hoped that Napoleon would come in and uh, uh, perhaps create a new and independent Poland. I think I caught you to say at the beginning of the show that, that the Poles were uh, disillusioned uh, by Napoleon, that Napoleon really didn't treat them well, uh, I, I would disagree. I would say that Napoleon ultimately ended up not doing everything that the Poles wanted him to do. But if you go uh, through the remainder of Napoleonic history, you'll find that the most loyal soldiers that Napoleon had outside of the French soldiers were the Polish soldiers. And, and uh, Napoleon did more for an independent Poland than... Uh, than anyone else had ever been able to do. Uh, had he remained in power, who's to say what, what might have happened? Uh, his, his treatment of Poland wasn't perfect, but he did create, as we'll see in, in a little while, the, the Grand Duchy of Warsaw and so on. And I think we mentioned that last time. 
and uh, that was more than the polls had and before. And when we get to the 1812 campaign, uh, we'll see that it was Napoleon's support for an independent Poland that was one of the two major factors that created the inevitability of the Russian campaign in 1812. So I, I think that Poland did pretty well by Napoleon, uh, didn't do as well as they might have hoped and as Napoleon implied from time to time. But Napoleon also was always balancing his desires against political reality. He wanted to help the Poles uh, for one particular reason. We'll talk about shortly, I'm sure. And and he, he believed in Polish independence and freedom, but he also wanted an alliance with Russia, didn't want to upset the Austrians and the Prussians to, to give them reason to fear uh, that, that they were in some, some danger. And so he had to balance all of these things and try to come up with something that would please as many people, countries as possible. Uh, and unfortunately, you end up oftentimes pleasing everybody a little and displeasing them a little more. And, and arguably, that may be what, what happened here. But I think Napoleon made a, a, a fair uh, effort to, to do good by the Poles. And I think if you ask Polish historians today, today they'll tell you that, yeah, Napoleon wasn't perfect, but Napoleon was in many ways the father of Polish independence as he was the father of Italian independence and in a very different way, uh, the father of German unification. Indeed, true. Oh, maybe I was too harsh on the old fellow. I guess, and we can talk about this when we get to the Treaty of Tilsit at the end. So, uh, as we said, um, the Russians under Benningsen were moving into Poland, moving uh, towards Warsaw. Napoleon moved up to meet them. They fought a couple of relatively inconclu inconclusive skirmishes around Christmas and Boxing Day in 1806. And then the two forces met at the town of Ilau. Is that how you pronounce it, Ilau? Ilau is the way I pronounce it. And let's not uh, bypass the, the Battle of Pultusk uh, on December 26, 1806, uh, a fairly substantial uh, battle, uh, at least to the folks who, who, who live there. Uh, most notable, of course, because while you refer to it as Boxing Day, I refer to December 26 as my birthday. <laughs> I'm always particularly uh, pleased that Napoleon won a, a, a what I would consider a major overwhelming victory. On Markham Day, as we call it. As, as well he should. Uh, and they still celebrate that battle at Pultusk. And, and I've visited Pultusk, and I've actually uh, stayed uh, in the... the uh, uh, bishop's uh, suite and gone into the room where Napoleon looked out and, and addressed his soldiers and so on and, and it's, it's quite nice quite interesting but yes compared to Eilau coming up that's that was a relatively small uh, skirmish so they meet at Eilau, uh on for two days the 7th and 8th of February uh, and I gotta tell you first of all for those of you who are thinking of visiting Eilau it is in the small Russian enclave of Kaliningrad and the little province is called Kaliningrad and the major city uh, is also called uh, Kaliningrad and uh, it's not always real easy to get to but both uh, Eilau and, and Friedland uh, battlefields are, are there uh, they, the name of the town for Eilau is uh, Bagration Obisk named after Bagration uh, and uh, there's a big statue of him, and there's some common graves of the Russian and French soldiers. And there's a very, very nice museum there uh, that you can go see. And indeed, if, if you email me, I can give you the name of the director of the museum and some contact information. Uh, it helps if you speak Russian, of course, because not very many of the folks in that area speak English uh, or French. <clears throat> but uh, it's, it's, it's well-preserved, and it's fascinating to walk on the battle the battlefield. But it was a horrible day for, a, for a, a war. I mean, February in that part of the country is almost guaranteed to be lousy weather. It was bitter cold. It was sub-freezing and then some. Uh, there was a lot of heavy snow in those two days. Uh, it, was, it was just about the worst kind of conditions 
that any average soldier would want for for fighting, but they weren't asking the average soldier what they thought of it, and that's where the two armies met. Uh, Bennington outnumbered Napoleon 67,000 to 45,000 or so, uh, although Napoleon had reinforcements uh, on the way. And, and the battle was for control of, of the city. Uh, and imagine... I think most of our listeners have probably experienced a blinding snowstorm at one time or another uh, where the, the snow was falling sideways, basically. It's blowing in your face. It's so thick you can't see very far. I lived in Wisconsin for many years, and we got those kind of blizzards. Uh, and imagine trying to fight in that. Imagine trying to control troops and send visual signals to your flanks and so on. Virtually impossible. No one really for sure knew what was going on. But by the end of the day, the French had managed to take the city. Now, that's not only important from the psychological standpoint or perhaps the tactical standpoint, but it meant that Napoleon's soldiers got to sleep inside with a fireplace and the Russian soldiers were out on, on, on little tents on the ground uh, with the blizzard. So the French clearly scored one for themselves uh, on, on the first day. Uh, second day comes along, same thing. Howling blizzard, uh, hand-to-hand fighting when you could barely make out the uniform of the person you were fighting. Uh, and Napoleon is... is uh, uh, has his headquarters uh, in a church, and the church is still there. It was converted to a, a washing machine factory uh, uh, by, by, by the communists uh, many, many years ago, uh, which uh, is one of the main reasons why it's uh, is still there. Uh, but it's there, and, and, and the house where Napoleon stayed was still there. Uh, and in the confusion and in the, 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 the heat of battle, although the word heat is hardly appropriate to this battle, uh, at one point, Napoleon's uh, small uh, guard is surprised by a significant force of Russians. And you can stand in the courtyard where, where, the, where the French were defending hand-to-hand uh, to keep their emperor from, from being captured by the Russians. Uh, but uh, it didn't work out because the Russians, frankly, didn't quite realize where they were and who was there. So they fought for a while and then, and then withdrew. Uh, but Napoleon very, very nearly got captured at the Battle of, of, of Eylau. And, uh, uh, and, and indeed, the, the Russians did pretty well on that second day. They began to, to push back the French forces, uh, but uh, eventually Marshal Murat uh, made one of his famous dashing and foolhardy but victorious cavalry charges uh, against the Russian center and really had a field day with them. Pushed them back, wiped out an awful lot of it, uh, sent them into, into chaos. Uh, Marshal Davout uh, is able to, to organize uh, forces to push against the, the, the Russian left. Uh, and as night fell, again, not a whole lot to be said for either side's position. The French, however, still control the town. Russians decided really no further point in continuing this, so they withdrew. So Napoleon wins, right? He controls the city, he controls the battlefield. That's the classic definition of winning. But make no mistake about it. Elah was a bloodbath. Each side lost somewhere around the same number of men, roughly uh, 25,000 men each. So 50,000 people, let's say, died on this battlefield for essentially nothing. Uh, There really wasn't any substantial gain to the French, obviously no substantial gain at all to the Russians, but both sides were bloodied, both sides were exhausted, freezing, and they said, oh, screw this, Uh, let's retire to winter quarters and we'll live to fight again in warmer weather. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, whilst, as you say, it was a very, very grisly and relatively inconclusive battle, Napoleon uh, felt 
felt, I guess, it was in his best interest to turn the propaganda machine on. And uh, in the official bulletins claimed that only he'd, he'd lost only 1,900 soldiers and had another 5,700 wounded, which um, was obviously just complete rubbish and I, I like that uh, the way that David Chandler puts this he says justifying the cynical phrase to lie like a bulletin well David and I used to go around on this a little bit there's no question that Napoleon exaggerated his gains and, and, and diminished his losses sometimes which by the way military bulletins have done since the time of Julius Caesar uh Generally speaking, however, you will find that most of the information in the bulletins is is fairly accurate and certainly gives a good flavor for what's going on. In this case, and this is one of the more egregious cases where Napoleon really has has uh, perhaps not fully stated his his losses because clearly there were losses and there were substantial losses. On both sides. And do, do you yeah. think his rationale for fudging the figures after you know a, a string of enormous successes was that he didn't want to uh, damage his reputation back home? That he didn't want to? That he was trying to fool the enemy into believing that it was more of a success for the French than it really was? Uh, who do you think he was trying to persuade with the propaganda? Well, he's trying to persuade everybody. I mean, in, in my book, Imperial Glory, which is the translation of these bulletins, uh, I point out that, you know, there's there's different groups of people for whom these things were written. They're written, you know, for his men and for his leaders, uh, his, 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 his marshals and officers. So they, you know, are careful to give credit to, to people who, who have uh, done well and units who, who have fought vigorously and so forth and so on. They're meant for the people at home. Lately, you know, he's trying to persuade the people at home that their army is doing well, that he is doing well, that the French are being victorious. Uh, and it's sometimes he, he's honest and says, you know, things didn't go so well. But as a general rule, yes, they are designed to show uh, his success, and that's often easy to do because he had a great deal of success. But they're designed for the enemy soldiers. He knows full well that the enemy soldiers, enemy leaders will get hold of these. Uh, and he wants to play a little psychological game with them, and just as importantly, they're designed for the the, the leaders of, of Russia and Prussia and Austria and, and, and Great Britain uh, to to read. And he wants the leaders of his would be enemies to understand that he Napoleon is victorious, and they are not, and they better get over it. Well, speaking of propaganda, the other propaganda battle that Napoleon was fighting at this point in time was um, with his wife, Josephine, back in Paris, telling her how much he missed her and how much he wished that she could be with him, but he felt that her place was in Paris, the Parisians needed her, the French people needed her, when, of course, he had perhaps other reasons for wanting to keep a fairly decent distance between him and Josephine at this particular point in time, didn't he? Well, sure. I mean, <laughs> you've got to remember, we back to one of our earlier episodes when, when Napoleon found out that Josephine had been anything but uh, uh, loyal uh, to him, uh, he determined that, okay, uh, he would feel uh, willing and able to, to do a little bit of that himself. Plus, when a soldier is on the road, great deal. Uh, there are, especially when you're, you're, you're a soldier who's a, an emperor and the leader of, a, of the army, uh, there's a certain temptation uh, without question. Uh, but also, to be fair to Napoleon, uh, the Poles made a specific effort to literally seduce him their cause. Uh, they had a beautiful 20-year-old I think in my book I describe her as a ravishing beauty, and by all accounts she was, and got images of her I've seen, and, and she was, named uh, Marie Valesca. And Marie uh, was this 20-year-old lovely, married to a 71-year-old count. A 20-year-old named to a year old married to a 71-year-old already uh, may be interested 
uh, and other things. This, hard to this, say. this guy was like the Donald Trump of his day in Poland, right? Well, I think he may have been. He was quite wealthy, quite powerful. He was a count. Uh, but various Polish patriots, apparently including her husband, who recognized that he was, shall we say, not necessarily heaving up the matrimonial bed as well as could be hoped, uh, encouraged her uh, to try to convince Napoleon that he should support the Polish cause. Well, let's see. You've got a beautiful young woman. You've got, you know, a rather virile uh, and, and powerful man. The nights are cold. Uh, she's warm. Uh, you put it all together, and in fact, uh, they soon developed uh, a, a relationship. Now, I've made it sound rather cynical because at the beginning it's hard to describe it as other than cynical. However, the fact of the matter is that relationship born of a political effort to seduce Napoleon to their side turned into a love affair that rivals the love affair of Napoleon and Josephine uh, for its its passion, its beauty, its romance. Uh, those two folks fell quite in love with each other, without question. And their relationship lasted not just through that winter where they stayed in this magnificent mansion called Finkenstein. Uh, they lived two months together. Uh, and I believe it may very well have been two happiest months of Napoleon's life. I mean, he was, he, he was, you know, just in heaven at Finkenstein, running his empire uh, from afar, uh, fresh from, from victories uh, over his enemies, and, and in the arms of this beautiful and passionate young woman. Uh, and that relationship, by the way, uh, continues for years and years and years. Uh, she joins him in Paris, uh, in 18, uh, later on, in 1809, she joins him in, in Vienna. Uh, that's when she becomes pregnant, and she gives birth to a child, uh, a, a, a son. Uh, he was an illegitimate son, but he eventually plays a role in French politics in the Second Empire uh, under uh, Louis Napoleon, Napoleon III. Uh, and, and indeed, she will be uh, there in 1815 to to, to wish him uh, goodbye uh, as well. And, and, and he uh, is, is put into final exile, and she visits him on the island of Elba. So the relationship is not just of a, a, a routine mistress or a convenient mistress. It's a relationship that truly uh, is, 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 is one that, that we can admire even if we have our qualms about admiring too much an infidelity uh, by 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 one man to his wife, I mean there is there is that issue as well. I'd like to also point out that that mansion at Finkenstein uh, was destroyed largely uh, at the end of World War II. The the the, uh, the Russians uh, destroyed it largely because Adolf Hitler also. Uh, spent some time in Finkenstein. The mansion is in ruins, but there is an effort being made to restore it. When I was there a few years ago, uh, we met with some of the, the, the people who were putting together the foundation to restore Finkenstein, and, and indeed we were honored to be the first uh, uh, outside donors to the cause. Uh, I don't know how that project is coming. I have seen how you can take a mansion in ruins, and if you look in my book, Napoleon for Dummies, I have a pretty good picture of, of, uh, of the mansion as it looks today, or as it looked three years ago, but I've seen how the, the Poles have taken buildings that were in that condition and restored them to their, their former splendor, and I can only hope that they're able, in fact, to raise the funds uh, through the European Union and other sources to restore Finkenstein because it was at one time a grand mansion 
and it has a rich and fascinating history that is well worth worth preserving. And significantly, the relationship, as you said, with Maria uh, lasted for many years. And according to the reports I've read, she stayed faithful to Napoleon until his exile to St. Helena. And then uh, in 1816, she married a distant cousin of his, Count Philippe Antoine d'Orno, d'Ornano, d'Ornano, <laughs> Count Philippe Antoine d'Ornano. And then she died, unfortunately, in 1817 in childbirth. But most significantly from my perspective um, as uh, people may or may not understand at this point depending on how much reading you've done Napoleon did have uh, a child eventually to his second wife Marie Louise who uh, didn't survive beyond early adulthood and had no children of his own so the Napoleonic bloodline the official you know uh, Napoleonic bloodline died out uh, you know sort of the middle of the uh, 19th century but uh, the child that he had with Marie Loesca uh, has a genealogy that survives to the very day so Napoleon's bloodline continues through the relationship that he had with Marie Loesca yes indeed it does and in fact I had the great pleasure on the trip to Poland a few years ago uh, to to meet uh, uh, Florian Valeski uh, and a wonderful man who traveled with us for uh, for some days uh, through various sites in Poland and and got to be a good friend of mine in very short order. Uh, unfortunately, a few weeks after we parted, uh, he died. Uh, but he was a direct descendant of Napoleon Bonaparte, and he and he has one or two brothers who are still alive. They're the only ones. I've I've had the great honor of meeting. A number of descendants of Napoleon's brothers, but the Valeski line is the only, as you point out, direct line of descendancy to Napoleon himself. And so, you know, one of the highlights of my Napoleonic life, anyway, was the opportunity to meet this man. By the way, who was just a delightful, friendly, easygoing person, and 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 I was just so very saddened uh, by his death. And one of the things that we did together while we were in Poland was we went to the tomb of Marie Valeska. And in Polish, Valeska is the way you would say it for the female Valeski, for the male. That's why it ah. seems like I'm pronouncing it differently. Uh, we went to her tomb. Uh, we laid some flowers uh, at, the, at the door, and she's in the lower level of a church, a very simple tomb. Uh, and that was an extraordinarily touching moment, uh, one one that I'll never forget. Uh, Napoleon's relationship with Marie Valeska uh, is is one of those aspects of his life that that you just have to admire, even if you have a a problem sort of morally with the concept. The way it worked out was extraordinarily touching, uh, and and really added added some light. Added some warmth to to Napoleon's uh, life. Hmm. Whereas you know the rest of his relationships with women uh, <laughs> were, uh, you know, n- not through necessarily their own fault because he obviously spent a, a vast amount of time either on campaign or in the office working. But the rest of his relationships weren't overly positive. They had their moments, but they were fairly strained. I think uh, at the best of times. I just uh, we should move on because we've. <laughs> As usual, we've nearly done an hour, and I don't think we've done half of what we're supposed to do today. But I, I just want to uh, read a couple of letters uh, that I think are, are wonderful. This is a, a letter that Napoleon wrote to Josephine on the 23rd of January, 1807, from Warsaw. He says, I have received your letter of January 15. I can't possibly allow a woman to undertake the journey here. The roads are too bad, unsafe and deep in mud. Go back to Paris, be happy and cheerful, and perhaps I will come soon. Your remark that you married a husband in order to live with him makes me smile. 
I thought, in my ignorance, that the wife was made for the husband, and the husband for the country, the family, and glory. Forgive my ignorance. There is always something one can learn from the fine ladies of today. Goodbye, my dear. <laughs> Goodbye, my dear. Remember how much it costs me not to let you come. Say to yourself, it shows you how much he cares for me. And then, on the pretty much the same day, he writes these letters to Marie Valeska. I saw no one but you. I admired no one but you. I want no one but you. Answer me at once and assuage the impatient passion of... N. Didn't you like me, madame? I had reason to hope you might, or perhaps I was wrong. Whilst my ardour is increasing, yours is slackening in pace. You are ruining my repose. Ah, grant a few moments pleasure and happiness to a poor heart that is only waiting to adore you. Is it so difficult to let me have an answer? You owe me two. In his third letter, there are times, I am passing through one now, when hope is as heavy as despair. What can satisfy the needs of a smitten heart which longs to throw itself at your feet but is held back by the weight of serious considerations, paralyzing its keenest desires? Oh, if only you would! No one but you can remove the obstacles that keep us apart. Come, come, you shall have all you ask. Your country will be dearer to me once you have had pity on my poor heart. Then the next letter, Marie, my sweet Marie, my first thought is of you, my first desire to see you again. You will come again, won't you? You promised you would. If you don't, the eagle will fly to you. I shall see you at dinner. Our friend tells me so. I want you to accept this bouquet. I want it to be a secret link, setting up a private understanding between us in the midst of the surrounding crowd. We shall be able to share our thoughts, though all the world is looking on. When my hand presses my heart, you will know that I am thinking of no one but you. And when you press your bouquet, I shall have your answer back. Love me, my pretty one, and hold your bouquet tight. Now, you know, this is a guy who at the time is indisputably the the ruler of Europe, the military conqueror, you know, the one that everyone talks about being this ambitious warmongerer. But that deep tragic romantic poetic side of napoleon we rarely hear about and and i i always delight i mean on one hand he's been cold and hard and you know lying through his teeth to josephine but as listeners will know i feel she deserved it the bitch but uh yet on the other hand he is this he is a real romantic this guy is a poet at heart he that was the other side to him that we we rarely hear about well you're right as as you usually are uh i i don't a couple of comments first of all if, if josephine uh married uh a soldier uh thinking that she would forever be able to have him at home then she was foolish indeed because the 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 plight of a soldier's wife throughout history has always been a uh, number one uh, that they uh, are are not going to be home a great deal, and and number two, uh, that there will be uh, in many cases uh, temptations uh, out there, uh, which is not to to uh, malign uh, soldiers. Many soldiers and throughout history have have not succumbed to those temptations, but she had to realize that there would be temptations. Uh, and given what they had gone through after the Egyptian campaign and the, and the understanding that Napoleon had of her lack of fidelity, she can't have been too surprised with the possibility, at least, that he might have had somebody out there as well. That said, uh, yes, Napoleon actually, in spite of your selection of letters, was extremely romantic to both Josephine and Maria Valeska. Uh, Clearly, Marie was the, the romance of the moment. She was a true romance. I really believe that Napoleon loved her probably more than he loved any other woman, including Josephine. That said, I also think he dearly loved Josephine. It would not be the first time in history that a man truly loved two women and would have been dearly torn between the two save for the fact that there was a thousand miles or so between them, which makes it a lot easier to, to be in love with both at the same time and not and not have to face, uh, shall we say, unfortunate consequences. But I think uh, by, by this stage, his, his relationship with Josephine had started to cool dramatically. I mean, it had been cooling 
when you know since the time he found out about her her affairs her ongoing affairs as we mentioned um in earlier shows and you know it's this is i, I i've always felt that it was when he found true love again with Murray Valeska that he really started to come to the conclusion that if Josephine couldn't bear him an heir, that he was going to have to uh, get a divorce, which obviously did happen only a couple of years after this period we're talking about. Sure. Well, I'm not entirely sure that that, that I agree with you. Uh, Clearly, the relationship was cooler than it was at the very, very beginning. No question about that. In all fairness, I think a lot of marriages cool down the, the, the passion of the early days is is difficult to 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 maintain although I hasten to add for the record that my wife and I have maintained that level of passion uh, consistently for about 25 years now uh, but you know for for for, for most of <laughs> Uh, you know, it, is she in the is she in the room as you say that, or do you expect her to be listening to the show afterwards? Yes, that she will listen to this, or someone will listen to this and report back to her. Uh, so I want to make it clear. And all teasing aside, of course, who are married for a long period of time do maintain love and, and, and warmth and affection and passion. But it is also true that the, the first years are are generally more heated, shall we say, than, than, than later, particularly when, as you say, they have two things going against them. Number one, there's Josephine's infidelity, which was followed very quickly uh, by Napoleon's infidelity in Egypt, a very designed infidelity. And number two, the great distances, uh, spatial distances between them. Nevertheless, I, I don't want our listeners to, to misjudge the relationship between Napoleon and Josephine. It really was a love for the ages, if you'll forgive the cliché. Uh, they really were truly in love, and I don't think Napoleon ever, ever stopped loving Josephine. Not through the divorce, not for many years after then. When she died, 1814, he was devastated, locked himself in his room for a couple of days and, and on Elba and so on. Uh, so we, we don't want to just dismiss them as a marriage of convenience that, that after Marie Valeska he was happy to, to, to eliminate in order to find a male heir. Uh, that said, if I had to say which of the two loves was the strongest for Napoleon, I agree with you. The stronger of the two loves uh, uh, was, was his love for Marie Valeska. Uh, and uh, it, I, it's always been interesting to speculate for me what would have happened if he would have married her Uh, we'll talk about that again when we get to that stage but of course she was not uh, of adequate political value Uh, and uh, there was also the question of the illegitimate son by the time that Napoleon gets around to to divorcing Josephine and marrying uh, Marie Louise so she was never likely to, to become his wife uh, but had she become his wife, it'd be interesting to speculate uh, how his life might have been different. And on that note, I think it would be <laughs> advantageous for us to say, given that we have been at this for a little over an hour now, that we will start next time. We will, we will, as Napoleon, repair to our loves and our lusts for the winter and return invigorated for the next issue of, of our podcast uh, and uh, talk about uh, uh, the the summer, the much warmer battle of Friedland and the Peace of Tilsit to follow. Does that seem reasonable to you? I think that's a pretty good call, my liege. Uh, I was just going to start quoting uh, from one of your books and talking about how you're my, the, the Napoleonic historian I admire the most, but you cut me off before I had a chance to do that, so I'll have to... Go. Go ahead. Go, please. Please feel free. <laughs> no. Never object. Sorry. Sort of. Ah, too late. You blew it. <laughs> what, were you, what quote were you going to use? Nah, I'm not even going to tell you. You, you. you just, you know, you jumped the gun. You, you know, you wanted to wrap up the show because your wife is coming back. You have to go and pick her up from the airport. And, uh, you know, you uh, put your marriage before your ego. And uh, that's probably the way it should be. 
No, no, my ego has come straight to the forefront now. <laughs> Next time, I've, I've bookmarked the thing I was going to talk about when we get to the Battle of Friedland. Thank you very much once again for joining me, Mr. Markham, and thank you, listeners. Uh, the the uh, downloads of the show just continue to grow every week. Uh, David and I are always really overwhelmed by the uh, feedback that we get, which is mostly positive, and even the, the criticism we really appreciate as well. Ah, oh, my wife's just brought me a smoothie. That wife's wonderful. Um, yes, well, my, my wife didn't pour me my medicine, but I was able to pour it myself. <laughs> Thank you so much to everybody. And please, if you're listening to the show and you haven't dropped us a line yet, please jump into the comments section or shoot us an email and give us any feedback. Uh, we, we really It really does motivate us to, to keep going with the show. Yes, please do. I enjoy reading the feedback. I try to respond from time to time. Uh, this is such a great deal of fun, and that's a, an element of the fun that, that, that I really enjoy. So, so let us know how you feel about what we're doing. And, and by the way, for those of you who are making noises about Caesar and Alexander, never fear. I, I, I think that we're going to do that too. Au revoir. Au revoir. <laughs>